Doesn't look like too many of you went home, so that's a good sign. <laughs> I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but what I'm trying to do is point out some of the high and the low points of this basic making of a new people, something that had never existed before on this earth. And there are two chapters where I think this really gets a crystalline form. Any of you who have looked at a map, you probably said to yourself, how could they possibly have taken that long to go from Egypt to Israel? I mean, it just is not that distance on any map, and I, I totally agree with you. Uh, of course, there's that famous joke, and I know you've heard it, but I have to repeat it, you know, that whatever was the matter with Moses, he wandered for 40 years in that part of the world and then settled on the only piece of land that has no oil in the Mideast. <laughs> and that is true. Israel is the only non-oil producing country in the Mideast. So what looks as if it happened, and because we don't have a map, in chapter 13 of Numbers, Moses gets them to the very southern border of what would be Israel today to the Promised Land. And it has not been that long. They've been on the road probably several months, if not maybe a year. As I said, planting, harvesting, moving on. And now here they are. And you know, sometimes people have a destination or a goal. And when it is within reach, they're afraid to grab it. And so he gets them to the edge of the new world. And then he asks each tribe to give him two men, and he is going to send those men into the new land to scout it out and to come back and report. And that is what happens in chapter 13. Each tribe picks two, and they go and they spy out the land, and they go from the south to the north, and they are to report back whether the towns are fortified whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees, and to bring back some of the fruit of the land. And so they go, and they wander north and south, and east and west. And at the end of 40 days, they come back. Here's that famous 40. It's everywhere in the Bible. And they come back carrying, between two of them, a gigantic bunch of grapes. If any of you have been to the land of Israel, that is the tourism symbol, is symbol of Israel. It's the branch with the two men carrying it and this enormous bunch of grapes. And they come back, and this is what they report. And they say, we have come to the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And yet the people who live in the land are very strong and the towns are fortified, and they are very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak is a mythical giant. And the Amalekites live in that land, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the country. And the Canaanites live along the sea. And this whole murmur begins, is this the land of promise? And Caleb, who's Moses' chief assistant and one of those who had been one of the spies, he quieted the people. And he said, let us go up and occupy this land because we can do it. We are able to. 
And the others who were with him said, we are not able to go up against this people. They are stronger than we are. So it is Caleb's group. The minority report says, let's go, we can do it. The majority report says, no, they're too big. And the objectors end with this little line, the land that we have gone through is the land that devours its inhabitants and the people we saw in it are of great size, and to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. And thus ends the attempt to enter the Promised Land. They thought they were grasshoppers in the presence of a giant. And if you think you're a grasshopper, what are you? You're a grasshopper. They were afraid. It's one thing to have the prize in front of you, and it's another thing to reach out and grab it. And they were afraid. And the congregation raised a huge cry, and the people wept that night. This is chapter 14. And they all complained against Moses and Aaron. And they said, oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died even in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land where we will fall by the sword? And our wives and our little ones will become booty. Wouldn't it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a captain and go back to Egypt. Now this is probably about rebellion number 29 on the list of rebellions. This is just the one I have chosen here. And so we have this enormous rebellion and Moses prays to the Lord, and the glory of the Lord appears above the meeting tent, above the little tent where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done? I will strike them with pestilence, I will disinherit them, and I will make of you, Moses, a nation mightier and greater than they are. And you know, at this point, if I were Moses, I think I would have said, good idea, God. <laughs> uh, really, every time I read this, I think that. He's brought them through all kinds of things, and all he gets out of it now is <clears throat> they're going to murder him. And then Moses doesn't say, good idea, God. This is why Moses was in charge and I was not. <clears throat> Moses said to the Lord, Lord, the Egyptians will hear it. The Egyptians will hear that in your might you brought this people up. And they're going to hear, Lord, that you who were with us in a cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night, you brought them this far, and then you couldn't get the people into the land. And Lord, think about your reputation. <laughs> I love it. I think it is one of the most wonderfully human moments in the entire Bible. When Moses pleads with God not to let the Egyptians hear that these people died <laughs> here in the wilderness, please, and he reminds him, he says, that the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving sin and transgression. So God, remember who you are. Remember God. 
that you are supposed to be God. And so, please don't do this. And then he does something that shows his greatness. He says, forgive the iniquity of this people. Just as you have pardoned this people all the way from Egypt until now. And then the Lord says, I do forgive just as you have asked. And nevertheless, none of the people who have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have tested me these 10 times and more and have not obeyed me, none of them will see the land that I swore to give them. It will be their children who will see it. So the leaders of the rebellion will never get into the promised land, but they are not wiped off the earth. So Moses turns the whole crowd of them away from this borderland, and they go back out into the wilderness, and they begin the long wandering <laughs> when they have to learn to be a people, and they have to learn that they are not grasshoppers. None of us is a grasshopper. It's a mighty lesson, and it is one that they find so difficult. But they also learn during this desert time something that's vitally important and that is not often underlined. They learn something about law. And I had skipped over the book of Leviticus. I don't know how many of you have read the book of Leviticus. It is the greatest cure for insomnia that I know. <laughs> All you have to do is start reading about these laws and they seem to be interminable. And after a while, you'll go right to sleep, I promise you, <laughs> all right? But what Israel has done when the, they put together the Bible, <clears throat> they take all the laws, many of which are later laws. These laws are not things that they are living in the desert. Many of them are farming laws. Some of them have to do with sacrifice in the temple. They don't have a temple. But they put everything at this period of their history as a sign that this initial call by God, that you are to be my people, everything that they will later decide has to flow from that initial call. It is a little bit, I think, <clears throat> as if someone picked up our, ten, our Constitution. And you read the Constitution, and then you come to the amendments. And if you didn't know better, would you think they all came out at the same time? You know, first we have prohibition and then we do away with prohibition. People would begin to say, can't they make up their minds? Well, you change laws as laws no longer have value, as circumstances change, as the people change. And one of the great lessons we learn about biblical law is that it has to be adjusted to the circumstances of the now Otherwise, it ceases to be a living word. Now, one of the jobs of anybody who's in municipal government is, of course, always updating the laws that are on the books. And there are certain cities that have old speed limits on the books that were put there when we had horses. Well, you know, once it was five miles an hour, it was pretty fast for the horse on the city street. You wouldn't get too far with a five-mile-an-hour car on the streets today. So laws have to constantly be updated. 
And I'm not saying this simply because I want our worship of God to always be current, but it's because there are vital interests here. The Hebrews believe, they believe firmly, that what they had was a living word. It is not a dead imprint forever to be kept exactly as this word. It's a living word. And therefore, they believe that their scripture must always be discussed and updated to make certain that it goes on living. Because if you don't do something, if you don't follow through on something, we talk about that being a dead law. We need to think on this. And we have a marvelous example of this in chapter 27 of Numbers. They are now finally coming near the end of these interminable wanderings in the desert. And it has been decided <clears throat> that when they move in by tribes, the land will be divided up <clears throat> among the men because they took care of the women. But we have this little problem. They're having like a great enrollment at the end of chapter 26 in which they're counting up how many men they've got in every tribe. And be very careful whenever you see biblical numbers, they exaggerate wildly. I, there were not hundreds of thousands of Israelites in the desert. No, 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 no. But anyway. <clears throat> So they're going to, you know, arrange things that everybody gets a fair share. Everybody who has come through faithfully has grown up now, some of them on this desert journey. But we have a little problem at the beginning of chapter 27 because we meet the daughters of Zelophehad. Do you know the daughters of Zelophehad, anybody? Oh, you're going to meet them tonight. They're my dearest friends. I love them. They come forward. And they are identified. We are told that Zelophehad was the son of Hefer, who was the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, a member of the Manassite clan. Do you know Zelophehad yet? No, not yet. All right. And the names of the daughters were Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. There are five of them. There are so many biblical women who never have names. We have these five girls right here. Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Tirza. And they stand before Moses, and Eleazar the priest and the leaders, and all of the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. These are five very liberated women. <clears throat> and here they are in the desert confronting Moses, who is right at the entrance to God's house, to the tent where the Ark of the Covenant is. And they say, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, one of the rebellions. But he died for his own sins, meaning that he was immortal and he died. And he had no sons. Now, why should the name of our father be taken away from the clan because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. Don't take my father's land and give it to his brothers, because then we're going to have uncles divvying out some little portion to us. There are five of us. Five of us, poor Zalofi had, was an afflicted man. He had five daughters and no sons. That's a biblical affliction, right? <laughs> they are demanding the right to be landowners. 
Would you believe this? 1300 BC, maybe? All right. And what does Moses do? Moses doesn't say, sit down and be quiet. <laughs> sit down and let the men take care of you, which is what anybody else would have said. Moses brought their case before the Lord. Imagine this. Here is this tent with the Ark of the Covenant. And in front of the Ark of the Covenant, we have been told in a part that we skipped, there's a little bench, a little stool. And Moses sits himself down on the little stool in front of the presence of God's word, and he gives God his problem. And he says, what shall I do? I, I, to me, it is one of the tenderest images to come out of this whole wandering and forming a people. Moses doesn't make this decision on his own. He consults with God. And then the Lord speaks to Moses. And he says, the daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their father on to them. And you shall also say to the Israelites, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, you give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, you give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman in his clan, and he shall possess it. It shall be for the Israelites a statute and an ordinance as the Lord commanded. Now, how is that for being modern? Women are given the right to inherit and the right to own land. And what this ultimately means is these girls are going to have the right to choose their own husbands. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Moses is an extremely liberated man because he's serving a very liberated God. <laughs> this is God's idea. And so Moses comes back out and he tells the people that this is what's going to happen. Then, of course, as always, there's a little problem. The men are chewing this over somewhere behind the back tent peg, and they don't like this, and they say, but suppose they choose to marry outside of the clan and take the land with them outside of the clan, then that clan over there is going to have more land because this should be in our clan. So they make a little amendment that if they marry within the clan family, the law stays. If they should marry outside the clan family, the land stays, but they can go. Again, you make adjustments when you see that perhaps what you've gotten is not quite right. Mm. Now, it is by such means that Moses eventually gets them by another route to the entrance of the Promised Land. They're no longer going in through the south. They have now gone up all along the eastern border, all along the Jordan River, and they are ready to go into the Promised Land. And despite all of his efforts, despite his defense of God, of country, <laughs> of people, Moses is not going to go into the land. 
And to be perfectly honest, we don't know why Moses has to die outside of the land. There is a circumstance that makes it look as it at one of the final rebellions of these people. How many times they screamed at Moses, they had no water and Moses found a water source. One of the ultimate times they are asking for water, Moses stands before a rock with his staff and he says, and shall I bring forth water from this rock for you? And the instance in the scripture is he strikes the rock twice and the water comes out. And it looks as if that twice was a doubting of the goodness of God. Most commentators say no. They say that Moses was such a great person, such an incredible leader, such a humble man, such an honest man, that whatever wrong he did has been hidden from us because we have no right to know it. And that this pseudo excuse for why he cannot get in is not the real reason. It is that Moses' job is over. And his job is not to bring them into the land. His job was to bring them to the land. And I like that as an explanation, to be honest with you. Moses one of, was one of the most amazing people. Nobody else anywhere in the Bible had the kind of a relationship with God that Moses had. He had a problem. He went and sat on the little bench in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and he and God talked about it. God gave him an absolutely incredible job of bringing brickmakers, slave laborers, unfree people out into a desert where they learned, one, that they have a living God. They have a God who speaks, and they can speak back, and God speaks back. They are the only peoples in the ancient world who had but one God. Everybody else had varieties of gods. There was a God of the earth, and there was a God of the water, and there was a God for the wind, and there was a God for marriage, and there was a God for you name it. The Israelites had but one God, and he had spoken to them once as a group at Mount Sinai. And what I think is most interesting is they never go back to Mount Sinai. That never becomes a place of Jewish pilgrimage. Never. It's modern man who has made that into a place to go and visit. They don't have to go back there because what God did there goes with them. God spoke to them. God gave them 10 words. And they've got the rest of their lives to learn how to live those 10 words. And it was one thing to be a slave person in Egypt where they were told what to do. They were told how many bricks we needed that day. And they were told where to lay them. And they were told how to bake them. And they were told what the building was going to be. And in the desert, they begin to learn the perils of freedom. Now, it's something we all learned. As children, when we began to learn to walk, we began to explore how far we could go on our little legs before they gave out <clears throat> or before we discovered what our limits were. And I think I might have told you this story before, but it bears worth repeating here. Um, one of the members of my community had family members visiting her, and there was a two-year-old in the group, and they were 
inside our mother house and they were visiting and the little, the parlor they was in were too small for the children. They, the little two-year-old wanted more room. He ran around the room to the, everybody crazy. So they looked out and outside this particular building is built on an enormous, enormous front lawn on a headland overlooking the Hudson River. It's the biggest front lawn on the Hudson River. And so the sister said, well, let's go outside. You've got the whole front lawn he can run on. And so they went outside and set up chairs on the patio. And they put the little guy on the grass and they said, here, run. He couldn't move. <laughs> it was too big. He had too much freedom. He could not. He had been driving everybody crazy running. And he couldn't take a single step. And this is, I think, a wonder. I've never forgotten the incident because I think it's a wonderful picture of us. We have to learn how far we can go as adults, and we all need some boundaries. And when he was inside, he had boundaries. And when he got outside, that lawn for him must have seemed miles, and he couldn't possibly explore it. Well, during this desert period, these people have had to learn how far they could walk on their own. And then when they had the chance to walk on their own, they decided they were grasshoppers, didn't they? <laughs> they were afraid to take a single step. And then they had to test the laws they had been given, the rights of inheritance. In Egypt, they didn't own land. And they're not going to own the promised land. And that's another very important concept that comes out of this time. The Hebrews always believed, and they believed this all through the Bible, that the promised land was never theirs to own and to wheel and to deal. The land belongs to but one being, God. Land could not be bought and sold in perpetuity. If you bought a piece of land, at the end of 50 years, the land had to revert to the original owner. It was not yours. You only held it as a steward for God. The earth was the Lord's. The earth made it. We seem to have forgotten that, haven't we? It's a good concept. Think about it. And so these girls asking for a share are simply asking for what's going to establish them in life. All of these concepts they have learned, had to learn to live into. So whether it took them 40 years or not, I'm not really sure, and I don't know that it really matters what the time span is. But when we come here to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses takes the entire book to let them know what God has done for them. Rabbi Abraham Heschel, great Jewish thinker, has said one time that the key biblical word that we always have to hold on to is the word remember. And every Jewish feast is a feast of remembering what that feast was recalling. And so Moses begins this wonderful saga of remembrance when on a headland overlooking the promised land, he gathers the people together one more time, and he explains to them everything that God has done for them. Now, at this point, we've got little people who have been born in the desert, and they never knew what it was not to be a mobile people. We have old people who came out of Egypt as children, 
they've now grown up and they know what it was to have been a slave and now they are free people. And before them is this new land with new hope and new dreams and new promises. And they're gonna have new leadership. Moses is very wise. He is passing the leadership to Joshua, who has been his loyal and faithful servant in waiting all through these years. And so Moses begins to talk to them. And as I said to you, he certainly took a very deep breath because he goes on for more than 30 chapters. <laughs> In fact, he goes on for 33 chapters. <clears throat> he left no stone unturned. And I warmly recommend the book of Deuteronomy to you as a way to summarize everything that has gone before from the last chapters of Genesis through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. This is the, the summary of what it means to have been turned into a new people. And some of it, of course, is hopeful. It's dreaming, because they haven't yet gone into the land. And then when Moses has finished everything, with a great blessing, with the blessing of the tribes, because each of these people is a descendant of some tribal member, he then is given his glimpse of the land. And in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, he goes up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, which is in Jordan today. Once in my life, I stood at the tip of Mount Nebo and I looked as Moses had into the promised land. I don't know what he saw the day I was there. It was a very hazy day and the promised land was uh, seen almost as if through a mist. And I thought, I wonder if Moses saw it like that. Wonder if it was a misty day for him. Or if I wonder if he saw it through the mist of the tears in his eyes. He's been working for this for more than 40 years and he is not to experience it, but his people will. And he looks at the whole land, and from Mount Nebo, whether you can see the whole land or not, I don't know, but you certainly can see the Jordan, and you see the Dead Sea, and you see the mountains of Judea. I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge vista. He looks at the whole thing, and the Lord says to him, and this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. God goes all the way back to 1850 and Abraham when he said, go, go, go. And this is the reason he said it. And this is it. And notice, the Lord always is identified as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, emphasizing the fact that we have to each claim God for ourselves. This is one of the things that they have learned. While they are part of a people they are individuals in a bigger people, and they have to claim God, and they do. And then the Lord says, and then I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. And he was buried in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. If any travel agent wants to take you to Moses' grave, do not go. <laughs> it is non-existent. 
And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. How do you like that? I had an old, old French Bible that was translated by the canon Crample. And he translated this as Moses' vision was unimpaired and his teeth held firm. <laughs> I always thought that was a very good way of saying that he was, he was himself to the very end, all right? And the Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. And then the period of mourning for Moses ended. And Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. That's the way that you passed on the spirit. And the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then there is this little eulogy. And the book says, and never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses and God had an intimate relationship that nobody else has in the Bible. They're friends. He was unequaled for the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and his servants and his entire land and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of Israel. There's never been anybody before like Moses because, and nor has there been anybody since because nobody else in all of the Bible was given a job such as Moses had. I would have said, no thank you, God. I know I would have. It was the, an unparalleled thing for one, human being who when he was called by God and he was obviously young had obvi had been a failure himself he was in an exile remember we started off with him in the back of the beyond of the wilderness and he becomes a leader of people he becomes a defender of the rights of God he stands up for God when there is rebellion against rebellion and rebellion on the part of these people and somehow out of all of this he forms a group of people now willing and able to cross the Jordan and to move on under Joshua. And I just want to say the way they crossed the Jordan is also, to me, incredible. Because one man from each tribe stands in the shallow part of the Jordan, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant, and they hold it in the middle, and almost dry shod, that fording place, they ford the Jordan and they move into the land. They are coming home to where they, their destiny has been. For 500 years they've been waiting to get there. There's that much distance we believe between Abraham and this journey. And Moses brings it about. And in the process, he doesn't just bring about a group of invaders. He, they have been formed into a covenant people. They are the only peoples in the ancient world who will dare to say that their God made an agreement, a covenant, a pact with them. That they have a God who speaks, which makes him alive. That they have his presence, his living word in the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark will travel with them 
for a couple hundred more years until it finally gets a permanent home. The Ark will not have a permanent home until the year 1000 BC, when Solomon builds a temple. That's in the future. But what I have tried to put before us tonight is this incredible journey that God dared to dream of, and Moses said, God, let's do it. And these people went on it. And they came into it as slaves, and they came out of it as a people. It's, it's unparalleled in history. And it is the work of God, obviously. It is the word of God at work in these people. All their human flaws are there, and Moses' flaws are there. He loses his temper with them. Wouldn't you? He defends God when he has to. He changes laws that he has made which aren't going to work. If these girls need an inheritance, well, let's give them an inheritance. There is a largeness of vision in Moses which makes him an unparalleled leader. And there is a humble spirit. He is God's servant. Now, this has been a rapid leap for these chapters or these first five books of the Bible, actually. So there must be questions out there. I heard lots of talking going on at the break. Good, sir. Thank you. First question. It's very interesting. This concept of the land not belonging to people and then the Israelites moving in they, again, it's a question of how they describe it. We get the impression that they came in and they will say in their story, they conquered the promised land and they never did. All they did was move in and infiltrate and settle among those people already in the land. And there will be battles over that land for centuries to come. So they never really, quote, grabbed the land. Um, these peoples on the move, this is the whole story of the Mideast. So I, I don't think it would be, we can't quite look at the way today would look at it. I mean, obviously, if you own a piece of land and somebody decides to camp on the, you know, that piece of that acre over there, it would be illegal today. Biblically, in those times, it was not. If the land did not have a tent on it, it didn't belong to anybody. Jim? Uh, Sister Carol. I think people of faith today uh, could benefit from a leader like Moses. <laughs> but I know times are different now than they were in Moses' days. So could you reflect a moment and uh, take a guess at what kind of characteristics uh, a leader like Moses would need today to be used by God in such a way? One of the characteristics, we tend, and I think it's a very unfortunate characteristic, we tend to look for very human external characteristics. We look for how people look, how their voices sound. Um, some of our great leaders of the past, let's take somebody like Abraham Lincoln, I don't think he could get elected today. Doesn't look right, and he had a voice that was rather high-pitched. We don't look for the same qualities. What we were looking at in Moses was a man who had a, enough of a commanding relationship with God that people listened to him 
when he said God said we should go and God said we shouldn't go and God said let's do this. Moses had a kind of what I guess we would have to call charisma and a leader does need some charisma. But Moses also had this very deep, very spiritual relationship with God. And when our spiritual leaders tend to sacrifice some of that spiritual aspect for a much more human kind of leadership, we today very often get politics and religion mixed up. And they should not be crossing boundaries all the time. There are two different aspects of us. We are all political people and we all should be religious people. And Moses was given the task of being both. Granted, he had a brother, and then eventually he would have a whole priestly clan to take care of the worshiping side of the people. But Moses' own very deep relationship with God, I think, is the source of everything that he was able to do. People could look at him and they could see what they were supposed to be if they only could get themselves together. He's a, there is no other leader anywhere in the Bible who is called to do what Moses was called to do who so humanly responds to it, and he's very human. He's got his flaws. He gets angry. But that one incident we had tonight where he defends God's honor, what will the Egyptians think of you, God? I think that's, it's a marvelous intimacy with God, which has to be developed from within. You can't put it on from without. And we as a people, and I think this applies to us religiously and politically, we look too much at externals and we can't find out what's inside. Moses was a man who lived in the tent with his people. He was part of this packing and unpacking as they went from oasis to oasis. What they suffered, he suffered. They didn't have water, he didn't have water. He gleaned his manna as they gleaned theirs. There was um, much more, I think, of a human relationship with the people. He was never above them. He only was above them when he went in and sat in the presence of God with their problems and then came out. And they stood there and waited. There are any number of instances in these books of the Bible where they're waiting for Moses to consult God. It's beautiful. It's an inadequate fumbling, but anyway, top of my head. Somebody else. Question? Nope, just scratching. Okay, you're allowed to scratch. Yes. Do we know how Moses, so he was raised by Pharaoh, and they have multi-gods. Multi Do we know what his vision or his religion or his faith was like before he saw the burning bush? You know, it's, it's a fascinating question. Moses seemingly, after he was rescued from his little bulrushes with his little basket. He was nursed by his own mother. And although the Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, took him into the palace, and he was one more little kid running around in the palace and tutored by the palace tutors probably, he always knew that he was not an Egyptian. He looked different. And he had some contact with his family because he knew his older brother Aaron and he knew his older sister Miriam. 
Uh, I know Hollywood has done a job on this. I once saw a movie on Moses where, you know, every Sunday he went home for his mother's dinner. Uh, I'm not too <laughs> sure that's exactly the way it went, but it was Hollywood doing what it could with the Moses story. He always knew he was different, and he got into trouble because he was out one day and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he couldn't stand to see his own people attacked like that, and he struck and killed that Egyptian, which is how he ended up being run out of town into the desert, you know? So we don't know how it happened, but Moses always knew he was not one of them. And therefore, but the mystery is, and this is the mystery that I, it's on my long list of things to accomplish when I get to heaven. But how did the Hebrews hold on to their religion, to whatever shreds of faith had come down from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all those years? And I can't tell you, but he certainly knew it. He was never one of those <coughs> Egyptians. He was different. I think we have time for one more. Yes. Yes. And, and that seemed to characterize their, you know, the wanderings and they settled in the land, but they didn't own the land. Um, so my question is, eventually they clamored for kings and a temple. So was that part of God's plan or was that? Uh, could you repeat what you said after eventually? Oh, they clamored for kings yes. and a temple. Uh, so was that part of God's plan? She said. You know what? It's interesting when you say God's plan. Does God plan ahead or does God plan ahead to deal with us according to our mistakes? <laughs> All right? And I, I, for one, belong to the school of thought. I do not believe that God has a plan that we must fit into, like a pre-made cast. But God has an infinite vision. And God knew the mess they were going to make because the couple hundred years will pass, you're absolutely right, and they will get tired of being God's people. And they will come to their then leader, who is Samuel, and they will say, give us a king, we want to be like everybody else. And Samuel will say to them, but this is what's going to happen. It's going to be conscription. He's going to set an army up. He's going to take your daughter's to work in his palace. He's going to do this. It's going to be taxation. You're going to have to support him. And they said, we want a king. And he consults the Lord, and the Lord says, give them what they want. And that's what God does. But what it means is, and this is the important thing, is God doesn't give up on us because God will then work with them all through the kingdom, and we'll see what they do with it. And that really is going to get... I think clarify a little bit by tomorrow night. If you come tomorrow night, we're going to see what they do when they become a settled people and they start to make these decisions because they're much smarter than God. But this, that's a great, very reflective question. I thank you for that. All right, one more, all right. I've always been amused by the concept of Moses, Moses haggling with God to uh, protect God from his baser instincts of wanting to wipe out everybody. <laughs> yes. It reminds me of when Lot haggled with him, kind of like he's buying a used car, about whether or not he's going to destroy Sodom. And my point, or my question is, is this sort of an example of the Hebrews attributing to God some of their own characteristics? Oh, absolutely. As, you know, and we all do. Yeah, you know, we, we make God in 
We make God in our image exactly, and that's it's another form of idolatry, because then we can adore ourselves. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? All right. You have been incredibly patient, and I like to stop on time, because otherwise, you know, I'm used to teaching high school. If the bell rang, they all ran in the middle of a word. So let's ring the bell. And if you come back tomorrow night, we're going to see what happens to these people after they get into the land and they get tired of being God's people. We're wonderful human beings. We're never satisfied. So come back and be dissatisfied. <laughs>